So I looked up on Amazon.com. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's a great place to buy books and other things. And I looked up bestsellers in New Age Spirituality. New Age Spirituality. Here's some of the top titles that popped up. Wishes Fulfilled, Mastering the Art of Manifesting by Wayne Dyer. And here was the description of the book. The greatest gift you have been given is the gift of your imagination. Everything that now exists once was imagined. And everything that will ever exist first must be imagined. Wishes Fulfilled is designed to take you on a voyage of discovery wherein you can begin to tap in to the amazing manifesting powers that you possess within you and create a life in which all that you imagine for yourself becomes a present fact. So as I read these titles and descriptions, I want you to just hear to see if you see any themes emerging. Here's another book right at the top of the bestseller list. It was called The Untethered Soul, The Journey Beyond Yourself. Whether this is your first exploration of inner space or you've devoted your life to an inward journey, this book will transform your relationship with yourself and the world around you. You'll discover what you can do to put an end to the habitual thoughts and emotions that limit your consciousness by tapping into the traditions of meditation and mindfulness Author and spiritual leader Michael A. Singer shows, shows how the development of consciousness can enable us all to dwell in the present moment and let go of painful thoughts and memories that keep us from achieving happiness and self-realization. Here's another. A New Earth, Awakening to Your Life's Purpose. Author Eckhart Tolle. You may have seen him on Oprah. He's one of Oprah's favorites. In A New Earth, Tolle expands on his powerful ideas to show how transcending our ego-based state of consciousness is not only essential to personal happiness, but also the key to ending conflict and suffering throughout the world. Tolle describes how our attachment to the ego creates the uh, dysfunction that leads to anger, jealousy, and unhappiness, and shows readers how to awaken to a new state of consciousness and follow the path to a truly fulfilling existence. And one more. The Secret by Rhonda Byrne. There's also a documentary on Netflix, you may have seen it, called The Secret. The description goes like this. Fragments of the great secret have been found in oral traditions and literature and religious and philo- religions and philosophy throughout the centuries. For the first time, for the first time, All the pieces of the secret came together in an incredible revelation that will be life-transforming for all who experience it. In this book, you'll learn how to use the secret in every aspect of life, money, health, relationships, happiness, and in every interaction you have in the world. You'll begin to understand the hidden, untapped power that's within you, and this revelation can bring joy to every aspect of your life. Now, we'll see as we break down the New Age worldview and try to understand it, that these books reveal uh, many of the general themes that we see throughout New Age thinking. These themes are found both in popular books like these, but also in in less familiar uh, but more foundational teachings of the New Age, teachings like this, and you probably heard this as you heard themes through each of these descriptions, Uh, themes like these, partial wisdom can be found in all religious traditions and text. So they've got no problem taking and grabbing, including from Christianity, things that help achieve their goals. Two, there's a unifying power or law at work in the universe that we must tap into. Three, the human soul and mind is more important than the physical body. Four, our self is capable of awakening to a new, higher, evolved state of consciousness. Five, the goal of such an evolution is the achievement of superior happiness, superior peace, superior self-realization, while reducing pain, fear, and the limits of life that are on us now. And then finally, this will all happen at the dawn of the new age. So while the New Age is, really it is, just like a lot of the worldviews we've been looking at, it's a vast landscape, 
often can be confusing. There's so many different streams of thought within it. But my sincere hope is that we don't uh, fall into simple caricatures or sweeping generalizations. But having said that, in our time, limited as it is, it's impossible to do justice to every different thought within the category. And so hopefully we just can pick up on those essential thoughts that really act as the foundation for this worldview. So that's what we'll do and that's where we're headed. And the thing about the new age thinking and the new age movement is that it's, it's, it's very popular and abundant in Seattle. In fact, back in the 80s, Seattle used to host at the Kingdom. Do you remember the Kingdom? If you are young or you just moved, it was a giant concrete building that sat where CenturyLink Field now sits and they imploded it. it was a, actually, that was a great moment. But the Kingdom was a great uh, stadium and every year there was something called the World Peace Event that was held there. Thousands upon thousands of people would come to this and through, it was really organized and promoted by new age, different New Age groups um, in Seattle. Thousands of people would come to the kingdom and they would uh, pray for, meditate for, um, speak about world peace. Thousands of people would come to that. And so Seattle has always been sort of a hotbed for New Age thinking. And I think it continues to be. So you think, well, I don't hear a lot about the New Age. Why don't I hear a lot about the New Age these days? You know, you might, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you might have heard more about the New Age movement. It got a lot more press, a lot more for sure than it does now. So has it gone away? I don't think it's gone away. I think actually what's happened is that it's become normalized. And when something gets normalized, it begins to be less sort of newsworthy, right? And so I think ideas from the New Age have filtered into our society, into the way we think as a culture, and so we don't hear as much about it because we've actually taken it in as just a part of our DNA, some more than others. And so we tend to always take in the, e- the more easily absorbable parts of a worldview, but we'll look at the whole worldview and some of the maybe rougher edges of some of the original prophets of the New Age uh, to understand really what's at the heart of this uh, movement, this worldview. And the examples that we read up front are, ver- are really the popular outworkings of the worldview. You could call it New Age light, but their ideas are, are based on these same, uh, these same roots that we're about to talk about. And just like Christianity should not be judged by the tele-evangelists, we don't also want to judge the New Age by the most popular, most palatable, uh, most widely read and distributed. We want to look at really what's the heart of, of the matter. And we should tell people to do that with Christianity, to look at the heart of the matter. In fact, we'd say, actually look at the apostles of Christianity And so we want to do that tonight, look at the apostles of the New Age to see really what is this worldview all about. So what is the New Age? Here we go. Get your pens ready if you're taking notes. We're going to go through and look at, we've been doing this, the eight questions to ask of any worldview. They're written in your bulletin if you want to look at them. But generally, let me say this first. When we say the New Age, this is a term not as a reference to like contemporary thinking, like we might use modern as as a title for a way of thinking. The new age is actually a reference to a coming day, a new age, when when human beings as a species take a major evolutionary leap forward, transcending the normal five senses into a higher state of consciousness in life. So the new age, just it's helpful to understand this as we go through, is speaking of a day to come. So Jean Houston, who is one of the apostles of the new age, she uh, would talk about awaiting the emergence of what she called psychonauts. Now, psychonauts are to the mind as astronauts are to space. So psychonauts is this new type of human being that are exploring the new spaces of the mind and consciousness. Houston writes this as well. It's almost as if the species, humanity, were taking a quantum leap into a new way of being. She goes on to say, to play on the vast spectrum of consciousness, we must have access to a humanity of such depth and richness as the world has not yet known. 
such a depth so that our great-great-grandchildren may look back upon us as Neanderthals. So you see that general theme? There's this idea of this immense leap forward that our great-grandchildren may look upon us as we look upon Neanderthals. So that's kind of the broad idea of the new age which is to come. And now here are the basic tenets of the new age. And I'll, and, I'll, and I'll break these into six propositions which loosely follow our structure of the eight questions uh, that are in your bulletin. And I'll kind of help point us to which questions these propositions are answering. answering. So proposition one. And this is answering worldview question one, what is prime reality? And worldview question three, which is what is a human being? Proposition one says this. Whatever the nature of being actually is, and there is differences within the New Age, whether that's an idea or matter or energy or particle, whatever the nature of being is, the self, the self is the kingpin. The self is prime reality. So as human beings grow in their awareness and grasp this fact that the self is prime reality, the human race begins to come to the precipice on the verge of this radical change in human nature. Even now, they would say, we see harbingers or forerunners of this transformed humanity. You could call them prototypes of the new age. And these would, of course, be the experts, the apostles of the new age. So, just to kind of give us some bearing. In Christianity, it's a transcendent personal God who is the prime reality. And in naturalism, we talked about that, it's the physical universe that is prime reality. But for the new age, it's the self. I am prime reality. The self. Now this idea, if you were here two weeks ago with us, Eastern pantheistic monism, this is uh, the worldview that's in parts of Hinduism and Buddhism, you might say, oh, this sounds very similar. And it is. They're stealing some of these ideas from Eastern pantheistic monism, but there's a very big distinction that you might realize when I say the self is prime reality, because in Eastern pantheistic monism, and we talked about, no, you want to realize that you are actually not a self, but you're part of the grand self. So they would say, Atman is Brahman. Now in the New Age, and this is why uh, it's so popular in America, they reverse that, and they say Brahman is Atman, because they want the self to be the center. So it's a similar idea, but it's reversed in a sense. But at the end of the day, there's this agreement within the New Age that the self, being the prime reality, is not only a part of the universe, but it's actually universe-making. So we, as human beings, as the self, we are not just part of a universe, we actually make universe. That's a, that's a really important uh, distinction. So uh, one, John Lilly, who's one of these New Age apostles, says this, all and everything that, can't, that one can imagine exists because we create it, because we're universe makers. That's proposition one. Proposition two, the cosmos, while unified in the self, is manifested in more than one dimension. Picture the self as the center. And the first dimension is right around that initial self, and that's the visible universe, that's accessible through ordinary consciousness, through the five senses, so we, we can have access to that. But there's a second layer of reality outside of that. So you have the self, which is the center, the first layer, which is what everybody can kind of perceive, and then there's an outer dimension, if you will, and that's the invisible universe, or what they often call the mind at large. The mind at large. And it's accessible only through altered states of consciousness. It's not that the visible universe is not there, but we want to see more of the universe. We want to move beyond this normal consciousness that everybody has, and we want to move to that second layer through what they call doors of perception. And for different New Age writers and thinkers, this can come about in different ways. It can be through drugs, through meditation, through trances, something called biofeedback, through acupuncture, ritualized dance, 
certain kinds of music, etc., etc. There's so much uh, that could be said and different ways of doing it, but we've got to somehow get through one of those doors to this next realm. And if we do, we then have access to this idea of the mind at large, which is to say that we really, as human beings, since we're part of the universe, we actually can have access to any part of the universe we want through the mind, because there is but one mind, the mind at large. Actually, what New Age writers would say is that the brain, because that's actually quite overwhelming to do that, acts as something of a a filtering valve to to that mind at large. For the ultra-enlightened, we can actually have access to other parts of the universe, other moments in time, space, history, at any moment through this higher state of consciousness. And so, if you see the title of the sermon, the question is, is the sky the limit? And they would say, actually not. There is no limits. We are limitless. We can have access to anything we want at any moment, and we can create anything we want at any moment if we could just reach this new age of consciousness. That might be confusing. That's okay. But just understand, limitless. There's nothing that's keeping us from anything. Past, present, any current moment right now, it's all the same. We all have access to it if we just transcend into this next layer of consciousness. And so what you see a lot in New Age uh, writing, and particularly amongst uh, the apostles of the New Age, you hear testimonies of -of out-of-body experiences in which they've been transformed and sort of sent to other parts of the world or other periods of time. You hear stories of heightened senses, lots of times involving intensified colors, people having auras, fields of energy around them, encounters with personal spiritual beings, and other very unique experiences. This is common in the New Age because of this idea of having access to everything, the mind at large. Now let me just pause here and just make a note about this. Because of what I just said, we have to ask the question, why do they have these experiences? And I don't believe that they're completely made up. And what informs me to say that I think some of these experiences are probably very real? Well, what do we believe as Christians? We believe that there are personal, spiritual beings alive and active in the world. And so we should not be surprised that they make contact with human beings because we see that in scripture time and time again. And so when you're dealing with the new age, if you find yourself in conversations with the new age, if you hear people maybe recounting stories like this, know that it very well could be true. They might have spirit guides. And you hear this in the writings. This is where a lot of the writers say that they have channeled spirit guides that are teaching them these things about the new age and the new consciousness. That should not surprise us. We believe, like the New Age, that there is another realm, an unseen realm, of personal spiritual beings. There are angels, there are demons, and so this should not surprise us to hear stories about this. Okay, unpause. Proposition three, and this is answering worldview question five, which says, how is it possible to know anything at all? And worldview question six, which is, how do we know what's right and wrong? Now, the core experience of the New Age is this idea of cosmic consciousness, right? in which ordinary categories of space and time, morality, what do they do? They disappear because it's all part of the one. So therefore, whatever appears to be actually is. There are no illusions. So while people live in this world where they sense right and wrong, they see knowledge through science and other things, that's just one part of, in fact, the lesser part, the initial visible part of the universe And so there's a reality that we must step beyond out of this sort of unevolved way of thinking into a higher state of thinking that actually these distinctions of knowledge and right and wrong, they tend to disappear. That's in some ways similar to the Eastern religions that we talked about two weeks ago. The other thing that New Age will say in uh, response to these sorts of questions is they they will say, yeah, human beings can understand reality because of their state of God consciousness, so they directly perceive it. You'll also see them often citing authorities of ancient scriptures and religions, so they'll cite Jesus, and they'll say he was, he had access to this new kind of consciousness. They'll 
they'll quote Buddha, they'll quote Hindu texts, whatever they feel like actually is tapped into this higher state of consciousness. So you hear that, so don't be surprised by that if you hear that. It's very, very common. Okay, proposition four. This is related to worldview question four. What happens to a person at death? In the new age, physical death is not actually the end of the self. So truly, under the experience of having this new higher state of consciousness, one should not fear death at all. So while death is a central concern for, it seems like all human beings, for those truly enlightened uh, by the new age, death is not so central. But what you will see uh, often in the new age is people recounting stories at considerable length of past lives, recalling details about these lives, details about past husbands or wives that they've lived with, because the self is not tied to one particular life or body, but continues to internally manifest itself in a series of conscious states. I've actually had a conversation, I'll share more about that later with somebody who talked about these sort of past lives and how they had been married to their current spouse in a past life and they were getting a second chance now at love in this life. Proposition five. This answers worldview question seven. What is human history? Now history, as a record of events that have actually occurred in the past, this kind of history is of little interest to people in the new age. But cosmic history, or sort of the meta-narrative of history, that's of great importance because we want to talk about history as leading towards the deification of humanity, finally reaching this new higher state of consciousness, this hyper-evolution. This is very important, but the specifics of history are unimportant. So cosmic history, very, very important. We're moving towards this goal. But particular history of little or no importance because we're getting all of these lives again and again. They're all part of the same existence. Final proposition, proposition six. And this answers worldview question eight. So then, what are the personal life-orienting core commitments of the New Age? New Agers are committed to this one thing. Realizing their own individual unity with the cosmos, creating and recreating it into their own image so that they might reach new consciousness, the consciousness of the new age. That's the core commitment, and everything is focused on that. That's the new age in a very brief, compact nutshell. And it's obviously attractive. And I think it's so attractive to Western thinking people, particularly those in America, particularly folks like Oprah, because we get to create through our imagination the universe that we want. The self becomes the center. Well, that sounds a lot like what we're all about in America, the pursuit of happiness for me my personal freedom to do what I want to do. And so you see how this can be very popular. Now what a lot of people don't understand is all of the metaphysical undergirding of the new age, but they like the idea of the self, self-realization, self-actualization, self-help, all of that. That is coming out of the new age movement. As I tend to do, I'm going to do this with great love, okay? but I'm going to talk about things about the New Age worldview that rub the wrong way so that we might see how the gospel of Jesus Christ, how the Christian worldview is different than the New Age worldview. There's three rubs that I tend to see. The logical rub, the gospel rub, and the scriptural rub. Why do I want to talk about all three? I believe God has given us brains, rationality, the laws of non-contradiction, that we find in logic, and he wants us to use those and apply those in the world that he's created. So we want to see, is there anything that rubs us wrong logically? He's also given us the gospel. We've had it proclaimed to us. We know about the death and resurrection of Jesus and what it implies and means, and so we want to take a look at that and apply it when other worldviews are presented. And then finally, the scriptural rub. We want to think about 
how does this worldview rub up, bump up against God's communicated word to us? Why? Because he's given us his word and he wants us to use it. And so let me begin with the logical rub. There is much logical rub. We won't discuss it a lot today, but I'll just ask a question, okay? The worldview of the new age promises this. New life, new person, and a new age of unprecedented peace, prosperity, health. And the question I think we want to ask ourselves is, does it deliver on the promises? Are the claims of the new age congruent with what we see actually happening in the world? Do we see an actual evolution of humanity to this new level talked about in the new age? New age thinkers are incredibly optimistic about human beings and what they can accomplish. But do the facts, does the evidence, if we look at it objectively, say the same thing? Do we actually see a new, better humanity emerging naturally? Or do we see the same old problems? Pride, greed, selfishness. I'm not going to answer it. I'm just going to ask it. Just going to ask it. The second rub, the gospel rub. The new age, like all worldviews that we've looked at, promises salvation. But how? How do we experience this salvation? And to show this rub, I want to tell, I mentioned it briefly earlier, I want to tell you a story about a conversation that I had with a woman named Emily on a plane ride from Denver, Colorado to Nashville, Tennessee. And what's interesting about this, if you were here two weeks ago, I talked about uh, I was at a bachelor party and I had great conversation at the bachelor party. Well, the reason I was flying from Denver to Nashville was also for a bachelor party. So if you get anything out of this series, it's go to as many bachelor parties as you can. I mean, even if you're not invited, just show up and just start having great conversation. But I was on a plane from Nashville or from Denver to Nashville, and I was I was walking. I was trying to find my seat, and I'm putting my luggage in the overhead compartment, as you always do on a plane. You look down and you see who's going to be your flying companion. And Emily was sitting here next, uh, sitting in the seat next to me. And Emily had purple pants on, and uh, she was a a lovely, wonderful, amazing woman. I enjoyed my time with Emily. And what I always do when I get onto planes is I Uh, very quickly, this is not good, don't follow my lead, I try to create the sense of, don't talk to me. (laughs) So I either pretend to be asleep, or I put my headphones in, or I pretend I'm on a phone call, or or something, just to kind of create the, don't do that. But the problem is, I couldn't do it with Emily. Something happened, a conversation was begun, and I began to talk to Emily. She found out very early on that I was in seminary, and, you know, she'd never met one of me before. And uh, she had some questions for me. But very quickly, I began to ask her questions. I was very curious to hear about her view of the world. Now, why was I so curious? Guess which class I was in at that time. And guess what book I was reading? The Universe Next Door. And guess what chapter we had just talked about the week before I went on this trip? The New Age. And I'm sitting next to Emily, and we begin to talk. Emily, from when she can remember as a kid, has seen auras. Colorful energies projecting from people. She talked, as I mentioned, about living a past life with her current husband. She talked about growing up with New Age parents and being taught the techniques of the New Age to see into that second layer of reality. She talked about diligently reading New Age authors. She had currently just finished reading Eckhart Tolle's book, A New Earth. So she was very well read, very much understood the New Age worldview, and had experiences to back up her beliefs. And I just kept asking her questions. I was so curious. I had such a good time just hearing her talk about the way she viewed the world. I just loved it. So I just kept asking questions. For about an hour and 45 minutes, I just asked her questions, and she told me more and more about the deeper parts. And sometimes I would ask questions about, 
you know, the origin of things. How did the world get this way? And there were some questions that she didn't have great answers for, but she was very honest about that, that she's not sure. At one point <laughs> during uh, the conversation, I went to the bathroom, and you know what I did? I went to the bathroom, but you know what I did after I went to the bathroom? I prayed. <laughs> I said, God, give me words to interact with this woman who is a wonderful woman but sees the world very differently than me. I came back from the bathroom. We continued our conversation. And the gist of what Emily believed about what I think is the most part, important part of any worldview is this. She believed that the main problem was the ego. She talked about the ego, which is the selfishness of mankind, which is keeping each individual and our society as a whole from reaching its ultimate potential. She referred as well to the potential of this new consciousness that we just talked about. She explained that salvation begins when our souls reject or starve out our selfish ego. That's how, self, that's how salvation begins. We starve out our selfish ego. And then she said we can only participate in the coming shift to the new age by par- participating in this rejection of the ego And then we can experience this liberated consciousness that allows us to communicate in new ways. So she talked about mediums and psychics and her experience with them. She talked about saving the planet that we're destroying daily. She talked about ushering in world peace, which is truly the reality of the oneness. She talked about all these things that we just talked about in the world when she she articulated them well. And then she gave me several examples of how the ego had corrupted people that she knew and how she had personally experienced the corruption of the ego and her attempts to combat the oppressive forces through meditation, simplicity, spiritual expression. And as as I began to talk about her, she had this deep, profound sense of wanting salvation, wanting to overcome what she perceived as her lack of full humanity. And more and more, I began to see in her a desire for what I would call the gospel. What do I mean? Emily's deep desire for salvation from her current state was so clear to me. She recognized the brokenness of the world. She recognized the imperfections of herself and those around her that she loved. She recognized that there was some type of evil, even if she wouldn't call it that, that there was unrest in humanity, that all of the created world was not as it should be. She recognized all that. And I believe, and this is so important, that those were God-given desires, God-given dissatisfactions with the world. Emily was not a bad person. She was a child of God looking for salvation. She was looking for salvation, but she was looking for it in the wrong place. So nearing the end of our conversation, like I said, about an hour and a half of me just asking questions and her telling me about her worldview, I asked permission from her. She knew I was a Christian. I asked permission, can I share with you my worldview, my vision of life, my vision of salvation? And she said, yeah. And like I said, I mean, this plane is coming down, so I know I have a little time. So I'm trying to be clear. I had done a lot of listening I had done a lot of asking questions, trying to get her to articulate her beliefs, so that if I, if I did get this chance to articulate my view of salvation, I wouldn't have to use jargon from Christianity, but I could actually use her own language to articulate the gospel. So that's what I tried to do. Using her terms, her language, I tried to explain to her my view of salvation. And since her two desires were to be the best version of herself that she could be, and for the world to operate in peace and harmony, I focused on that. And I tried to present a reasonable, rational account of Christianity and the gospel. And as I described to Emily the Bible, I I told her about creation, because that was one of the questions that I had asked her. Well, how did this world come to be in the way that you explained? She honestly said, I don't have a good answer for that. I explained creation, creation from a personal God, that human beings are created in the image of God. I explained the fall from perfection. She's like, yeah, she's tracking with me. She understands these things of the fall were not as what we should be. And I articulated many of her concerns that she'd previously expressed. And after explaining about how humanity had lost its way by choosing selfishness and the ego over God, 
and how I too had the same longings that she had to be made whole again, to be more, I had this sense of I could be more than I am. It was here that the conversation was brought to the crossroads. Okay, we have pretty much agreed that we're in a similar state, that there's more to being human than uh, what we currently experience, that something's broken and wrong. And so we're at this crossroads. And I said that to Emily, so I said, here's where things might start to sound different. I said, I can't logically understand how an imperfect, ego-driven being could, by their own effort, jump out of that pit that they found themselves in, they had made for themselves. I said, that didn't make sense to me. How does imperfection plus desire plus time plus effort equal perfection? How does imperfection plus desire plus time plus effort equal perfection? And as I began then from that point to explain how I think it actually happens, so I'm really just kind of stepping gently into the gospel. I haven't got there yet. I'm stepping gently into the gospel. I think I was just about beginning to mention the cross of Christ. Suddenly, suddenly, Emily Suddenly and loudly, Emily jumps right in and she says, interrupting me, she blurts out these five simple words. I'll never forget it. We need a helper. And I'm looking at her. I'm like, okay. And then you could see her face. She almost got embarrassed at what she had just admitted. She quickly regathered herself And almost jokingly said, oh, you're going to tell me that that helper is Jesus. And I stopped and I looked at her. I didn't even have to answer. Emily had realized the problem, the problem in her own worldview. And for some reason, she realized the solution in Jesus Christ made a lot of sense and she blurted it out and then she stepped back the plane landed we got our bags we walked out we exchanged contact information I said if you ever have any questions about Christianity you just shoot me an email we emailed once or twice then lost touch I don't know what Emily's doing now, but I know for a fact that God sat me in that seat next to her because he wanted somebody just to talk to her about what she believed, and he did the rest, bringing up the truth of the gospel. And I hope one day, as I'm walking around in the new heavens and the new earth to see Emily, and we might recall that day, who knows, maybe somehow this sermon will find its way to her, I don't know, but I know that God had a message for Emily that day. And she came to the conclusion herself, we need a helper. We can't do it on our own. That's the gospel rub. The gospel says we can't do it on our own. We needed a helper, and his name's Jesus, and he went to the cross, and he died for us, and he rose again. Now finally, the scriptural rub. Revelations 21, 1 through 4 says this. It's written in your bulletin. Revelation 21, 1 through 4 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they with his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Here's the deal. Christianity believes in a new age, a new age to come. But the scriptural rub is what and who ushers in the new age. 
Jesus himself says in Matthew 24, he's sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and he starts to tell them about this coming new age. And his disciples came to him privately saying this, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus told them, there will be false Christs who claim that they are the Christ. They will lead many astray. He said there will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. There will be unmatched tribulation. And he says this, and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the sky a sign, the Son of Man, which is the term Jesus used of himself. He says, I will appear, coming on the clouds with power and great glory. That will be the ushering in of the new age in full. But here's the deal. The new age has already been initiated in part through what? We talk about this almost every week. It's been initiated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago, he initiated the beginning of the new age to come. So once again, the resurrection takes center stage because we have in it the hope that has already been proved that is present through the already historically risen Jesus of Nazareth. So he's initiated it through the resurrection as he's proven that there's a new age to come even after death. But it's not yet fully present because we are awaiting its future full fulfillment. Which Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24. And what is he waiting for? He's waiting for the gospel to go out to the nations so that everybody has a chance to hear the good news of Jesus, the good news of salvation, And so, Jesus becomes then the first fruits of that new age that everybody's hoping for, including those of the new age movement. But he is the first fruits proven in history by the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says this, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is the first fruits of the new age, There is a new age, but it's not ushered in by us. It's ushered in by Christ. And in the Gospel of John, we have three resurrection accounts. Mary Magdalene, Thomas, and Peter. And I think each of them shows us something about the new age, something that's different than the new age that we're speaking of tonight. First, we have Mary Magdalene. And you may remember the story or not, but she is the first to arrive at the tomb of Jesus and she looks in and and she sees that the body is missing and she begins to weep. She thinks that somebody has stolen the body and she looks out into the garden and she sees a man in the garden and she thinks that the man is a gardener. Guess who the man actually was? It was Jesus. She doesn't recognize him at first. We don't know why. Perhaps it's the tears flowing down her face. Perhaps it's the time of day. We don't know why she doesn't recognize Jesus as Jesus, but he has already experienced the first fruits of the resurrection. He has already stepped into this new creation, this new age, and she mistakes him for a gardener. Now what's so amazing about this picture of Jesus in the garden? Well, if you look back at the very beginning of this book, it starts in a similar place, the garden. And Jesus becomes the beginning of a new age that also begins in a garden. The new age ushered in by Jesus, beginning in a garden. It's not begun by a jump to another dimension, but it's right here in this physical world we see that the new creation, the new age, looks a lot like the age that already is. Why? Because God's creation was not bad. It was good. It was very good. So the new age is not something completely different, completely other. It's just this age fixed. It's not hyper-evolution. It's the healing of an ancient wound. You see the difference? Now how does Mary come to experience this new creation, this new age ushered in by Jesus through the resurrection? 
It wasn't by a heightened state of consciousness. In fact, she was as low as she could be. Her friend, her savior, who she thought had just been killed, she was low as low. She was not in a heightened state of consciousness. She did not have some special technique or mastery. No, absolutely not. What did she have? She had a lot of tears running down her face. And it was through the tears that she sees for the first time, the first person in history to ever experience the new age, the risen Lord, and it's through tears. I think that's beautiful. It's not for the smartest. It's not for the enlightened or the special. It's for the weeping, for the hurting, to see Jesus, to experience the new age. The new creation is known by mourners. So we have Mary seeing the new creation, the new age, through her tears, and then a great thing happens. Jesus tells her to go and tell the others. You know why this is so great? You know what the new age is going to be like? Do you think anybody expected that it would be a woman who would be the first person to see the new age? to be the first person to give an account to the other disciples of Jesus' resurrection. The new age shatters distinction. It shatters old man-made assumptions about the way things will be. It truly is a new age, and it's exciting. Now, the second resurrection story is Thomas. We all know Thomas, doubting Thomas. Thomas didn't believe the accounts of the other disciples who had seen Jesus. He said, I'm not going to believe it until I see it and I touch it with my own hands and I put my hand in Jesus' side where the spear had pierced him. I won't believe it. And Jesus walks into the room. And Thomas, demanding evidence, demanding that it be proved that it's true, that resurrection is real and possible and the new age has arrived in Jesus. And you know what Jesus does? He doesn't rebuke him. Instead, he gently and lovingly reassures him, lets him touch his hands and his side, and Thomas has the real, physical evidence that he needs to believe. And you know what he says? Thomas says, my Lord and my God. The new age that Jesus ushered in 2,000 years ago is as real as this music stand is real. It's real and it's physical and you can touch it. And for those of us who have that bent that we need evidence, we have it in the resurrection. The new age is not just an idea. It was walking through the garden. It was walking and sitting next to Thomas. You can touch it and you can feel it. So we can have objective confidence in this promised new age to come. And it began with the resurrection of Jesus. Finally, we have Peter. If you know the story of Peter, he's fishing out on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus comes and he stands on the shore. And Peter's the first one to recognize, hey, that's Jesus. And there's some ways out. And instead of doing the smart thing, which is to row the boat in much quicker, that's why we have boats, Peter jumps out of the boat and he swims in as fast as he can. And it says the other disciples took the boat in Normally, they probably beat him to shore. But Peter jumps out in his excitement to see Jesus. And he comes up upon him and then he gets to have breakfast with Jesus and they're sitting around the fire. And you know what Jesus does? He asks Peter three times this question, do you love me? And every time Peter answers, yes, Lord. Three times. Why three times? Peter had denied him three times just days before When Jesus was arrested, he denied him three times. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. The new age is not primarily about our happiness or our self-realization, our fulfillment, but it's primarily about a relationship. The new age is about a relationship of mutual love between God and us. Us and our Savior Jesus Christ. That's why he asks him the question, do you love me? And I love Jesus' reply to the final yes, Lord, of Peter. You know what Jesus doesn't say? He doesn't say, thanks. 
You know what he says? Feed my sheep. What? Aren't you glad that I love you, Lord? He says, feed my sheep. The kingdom is about love, it's about worship, and it's about service to God. So when we say, I love you, Lord, he says, feed my sheep, which means what? Go tell them about the good news. Give them the bread of life. Give them me. So as we enter into this reality of the new age, which was ushered in by the already resurrection of Jesus and will be completed by the not yet to come return of Jesus, we ask the question, are we limitless? The answer, of course, should be no. But it is true that it will take someone who is limitless to help us. We need a helper, and he must be limitless if we're to make it into the new age to come. But we're not that limitless helper. Jesus is the limitless helper. Why? Because he's God the Son. That's why the incarnation is so important. He's the limitless one. He's the Son of God. And how do we participate then in the new age? Not by our own power, but by his power. It begins by turning from our overestimation of ourselves and admitting our underestimation of Jesus. When we recognize this, then we fall to our knees and we worship Christ as the limitless one. As God incarnate, whose power was not limited by death, but proved in space-time, observable history through the physical bodily resurrection on Easter Sunday. And why? For doubters like Thomas. So when we embrace him through the tears of our sorrow and our pain like Mary, then we all then we all get a second chance to re-answer the question that Jesus posed to Peter three times. Do you love me? Thank God we get a second chance to answer that question. Our love of Jesus, not our love of self, fortifies us and we participate in this promise. The promise of a new age, of the kingdom of God, which is coming. It is coming. It is coming. Do you know the king? Let's pray.